we shall pray before we begin. Father, we do ask that your word will live in us. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will just open our eyes to see just what it is that Jesus has done for us and what it is that Jesus wants to do for us all the time. So, Lord, just take your word and, Lord, incorporate it into our own experience. <coughs> Father, we need to understand what you're doing. And we pray now that you'll really open our eyes and give us revelation of your truth. Because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right, well, we, we come tonight to our twelfth study on the series we're doing on salvation. I'm going to have a recap, if only because there are some here who haven't been uh, to any of our others on this. Now, <clears throat> what we're in fact seeing is that what the Bible teaches about salvation is far more comprehensive than most Christians realise. We normally think of salvation in terms of, well, he got converted, now he's saved, and uh, that's it. And what we've been seeing is that salvation, obviously, because we're human beings, fits, fits in with us, and that God has placed us in time. And time consists of past, present, and future. And we're seeing the comprehensiveness of salvation in these three areas. And what we're seeing is that salvation relates in different ways to the past, to the present, and to the future. In regards to the past, because we've believed in Jesus, we have been set free from the penalty of sin. Now that is past because you've been converted, you will never ever face God's judgment on sin. So past salvation, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. And the Bible refers to that as justification being justified before God. But now, at this precise moment in the course, we've moved on to present salvation. And we're seeing that God, having delivered us from the penalty of sin, hasn't stopped there. Because in the present tense, he's now moving on to deliver us from the power of sin in our lives. And we're seeing that that process, if you like, is what the Bible calls sanctification. And then we are going, in later studies, to move on to what the Bible says about future salvation, that salvation which is yet to come, in that one day, having delivered us from the penalty of sin, having then gone on to enable us to be freed from the power of sin, that the day is going to come, either on death or the rapture, and we'll get to all that later, when we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. And that is what the Bible calls glorification. So we have salvation, past, present and future. Past salvation delivered from the penalty of sin. Present salvation, because it's going on now, delivered from the power of sin. And future salvation delivered from the presence of sin. And that these are called by the Bible, respectively, justification, sanctification, and glorification. 
And we've seen as well from the Bible that to be justified or to have passed salvation from the penalty of sin, that was accomplished for us through Jesus' death. We are now in process of seeing that sanctification or salvation from the power of sin, present tense, is not through Jesus' death, it's through his resurrection. Because whereas justification, whereas deliverance from the penalty of sin was because Jesus died in our place, sanctification or the being set free from the power of sin is because Jesus not dies in our place but because he lives in our place and that's what we're on at the moment he lives through us and then future salvation is attained by Jesus's not his death not him being raised from the dead but by his return and one day Jesus is coming back to deal with the problem of the presence of sin once and for all but we are dealing at the moment with the second phase of the course we are on sanctification or being delivered from the power of sin in our lives and we are seeing that this is accomplished for us and in us because Jesus is alive and that he lives through us he lives if you like in our place and so what we're looking at now is present salvation sanctification delivered from the power of sin and where we've come thus far on this our second phase of the teaching on salvation is that we have seen in earlier studies that we because we're Christians have been incorporated into the death of Jesus we are put in Christ and we share his experience everything Jesus has been through is now incorporated into our experience because we are in him and one of the experiences that Jesus has had is that he died to sin therefore because we are Christians you and I can share in Jesus's experience of being dead to sin and therefore sin having no power over us and we then went on to see Paul's teaching in Romans 6 which told us that the body of sin has been destroyed by the death of Jesus and we saw that that word destroyed was katagio and it means not to destroy at all it means to neutralize and that as Christians to the extent that we remain abiding in Jesus by simple faith expecting him to overcome our sin having realized we can't do it ourselves to that extent that we abide in Jesus by faith then sin the power of sin in our lives is going to be neutralized in the same way that if you have a bottle of acid and then pour on alkaline the acid is neutralized in the presence of the alkaline but we saw too that if you then remove the alkaline the acid is there with as much of a sting as ever so therefore deliverance from the power of sin in our lives is through this abiding by faith in Jesus this being surrendered to him in simple faith 
trusting him to overcome our sin to that extent we will experience deliverance from the power of sin but we saw too that it's not a question however of being totally delivered from the power of sin we saw that there can be certain areas of our lives where we have been dealt with where we can be abiding in Jesus and victory over sin has come whereas at the same time there are the other areas in our lives that haven't been dealt with yet and they have yet to be brought into the death of Jesus and hence you have this ongoing uh, experience of God sanctifying us so we've seen that the key to being set free from the power of sin was exactly the same key that God has set free from the penalty of sin it was simply by believing it was simply by faith it was simply realizing that Jesus has done it for us and then acting as if that is true and we looked in Hebrews and we saw that the picture that the writer gave us and he he told us as we read in Hebrews that the universe has been created alright that on the seventh day God rested and what we saw from that is that we have two facts one the universe doesn't need creating anymore it's there it's finished two we are dead to sin in Jesus and we saw that the problem was that whereas we believe the first statement that the universe has been created i.e. you got up this morning you believe it's there you then live accordingly you got up and lived in that universe today but whereas we believe and act on fact number one the universe is created we don't believe fact number two that we're delivered from sin and therefore we don't live according to it and that the real problem the hindrance to our being sanctified and being set free from the power of sin the hindrance is that we saw the Bible says we have evil hearts of unbelief it's because we don't believe it and we then proceeded to ask the question well okay seeing as we can be set free from the power of sin by simply believing why is it that unbelief has such a strong hold on us and we then saw and we used as our picture the uh, Israelites going through the wilderness we then saw that the problem is that our unbelief has so much power over us because it has our cooperation it suits us better to not believe it than to believe it because it gets us our own way where you know we like sin we enjoy it uh, we're proud we're independent from God and we saw in our study through the wilderness how through problems and bad times God deals with this thing in us that likes to keep unbelieving for instance he shows us how sinful we are and whereas you enjoy sin a little bit eventually when you experience for yourself how dreadful it is then you don't like sin anymore and unbelief loses that little bit of a hold on you so what we're looking at at the moment then is the various ways whereby the Holy Spirit works in our lives to deal with the unbelief in our hearts which prevents us from moving in the experience of being set free from the power of sin in our lives 
And what I want to move on to tonight is to have a look at another area, another work that God has to do us to set us free from the unbelief that we have in our hearts. Now if you turn to Psalm 51, I just want to read one verse which is going to tell you, if you like, the area that we're going to cover tonight and look at. And Psalm 51, of course, as you realise, is the psalm of repentance that David prayed after he had sinned with Bathsheba. You remember he committed adultery with her, then to cover it up, he had to have her husband murdered. All right, And eventually God convicts him of sin and he repents. This psalm is David's confession to the Lord. But what we want is verse 17. And David says this, The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And what we're going to look at tonight is brokenness. And the thing that I'm after, the picture I want you to have in your mind is this. We are seeing that salvation from the power of sin, sanctification, is not through the death of Jesus, it's through the life of Jesus. And the key thing to remember is Jesus wants to live through us. The Christian life is not what we do for Jesus. The Christian life is Jesus living through you. And of course, the day or night, the moment that you became a Christian, you literally opened the door of your life to Jesus, and Jesus came in. Now, at that moment, Jesus made his dwelling place, along with Father and along with the Holy Spirit, in you. Jesus lives in you. So we have this. Jesus is in you. He wants to live through you. So why is it we see so little of him when we look at ourselves? And the answer is this. He's on the inside, but he can't get out. Because our stubborn, unbelieving hearts are in the way. And sometimes, if you like nuts, and I know you all like me, but that's not what I'm meaning. If you like peanuts or anything like that, in order to get to the goodie, you've got to break the shell. Now, can you see that before the life of Jesus can be released in us, the shell of our unbelief and our stubborn wills has got to be broken. When broken, then Jesus can start coming out. So what we're looking at tonight is that work which the Holy Spirit does in us, whereby he brings us into the experience of brokenness. And we're going to see this by looking at the escapades of one particular believer, who I think we'll all be able to identify with. We're going to have a look at good old Jacob. All right. Now, before we do that, let's actually read the part of his life that we're interested in. And go to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. Now we're going to have a look at what's happened immediately prior to this in a few moments. But we're just going to read from verse 22 down to the end of the chapter. Isaiah 32 verse 22. 
Genesis. Genesis. Chapter 32, 32, verse 22. That same night he arose, I, Jacob, and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and Jacob's thigh was put out of joint, broken, as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no more be called Jacob. But Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Tell me, I pray, your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. And of course it's from there we know that this is Jesus in his pre-existence. Jacob is having a wrestling match with the Lord Jesus. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is upon the hollow of the thigh, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh on the sinew of the hip. Now, God in the Bible has many, many names. And I've said before that to the Eastern mind, your name was more than a simple verbal kind of way of saying it's you as opposed to someone else. I mean, it wasn't just an appellation verbally. It meant something. To the people in the East, your name actually signified something about who you were. Therefore, each of God's names that he chooses for himself, that's God's prerogative. I've got no choice in my name that God, being eternal, could choose his own, alright? So therefore, the names he chooses describe something about him. And one of God's favourite names throughout the Bible is this. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Now that is one of God's favourite names. I mean, I mean, sort of, say... You sort of, I mean, say someone else, an ordinary human being, decided to call himself like that. You'd have to introduce them as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I mean, it's a weird old name, isn't it? But God wanted it, quite a mouthful. Now, why is it, what was God trying to say about himself in that name? Well, I think we can get an idea. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Let's understand something about this. Abraham, in the Bible, represents to us the father of faith. In the New Testament, Abraham is looked back as the example of faith. All right? He's considered the father of faith. Abraham was also the beginning of God finding a people for himself. And remember, the main reason for God wanting his own people and creating the Jews was so that he had a nation that Jesus could be born through. So Abraham was the first Jew, the first one, and he was the beginning of God finding a people so that he could provide salvation. Everything originated in Abraham. 
So can you see that Abraham as a character stands very, very clearly as being the father or the beginner of all things. Now, insofar as we have that, Abraham represents for us, and I'm going to show you that this name, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, is to show forth the Trinity and the differing functions, if you like, of each person in it. Because the title of Abraham gives us God the Father. And in reading the Bible, it was God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, who started everything off. Everything is his idea. He is the originator of everything that there is. God the Father takes the lead. He is, if you like, the initiator of all things. Now let's look at Isaac. Now firstly, Isaac was born to Abraham, but he was a miracle baby. Because by the time he was born, Abraham and Sarah were far too old to have any kids anyway. He was born of promise. If you like, he was born after the spirit rather than after the flesh. Because it was a miracle that was needed in order for him to be born. Uh, does this ring any bells? Also, Isaac, if you go through his life, received everything he had as a gift from his father. Abraham built up, if you like, the family business. Abraham got the family firm underway. The family of Abraham was loaded with money and prosperity because Abraham built it up himself. Now, Isaac was born into that and received all those riches simply as an inheritance. Just received it as a gift from father. Also, if you look at Isaac as a character, he is completely submissive and subservient to Abraham. You'll remember that when the time came for him to get wed, Abraham chose his wife. Isaac even had his wife chosen for him by his dad. He was completely submissive in all things. And there's something else as well. Because if you read through the story of Abraham and then read through the story of Isaac, you will discover that by and large, Isaac only ever did what he had seen his father doing. The history of Abraham is repeated in the history of Isaac. In fact, there's only one thing that stands out that Isaac appeared to do on his own initiative that seemed to have nothing to do with what Abraham had done. And Isaac decided to give himself some wells. But if you look closer into the history, all he did was he undug some wells that Abraham had dug years before and had got filled in. So the point is, Isaac only ever did what he'd seen his father, Abraham, doing. And it's interesting, even Isaac's sins were a copy of Abraham's. Do you remember when Abraham got in that little skirmish with Abimelech, alright, and thought that Sarah, you know, he was worried in case this king fancied his wife, so he lied about her being his, uh, his sister, alright, which was half true. She was his half-sister, in fact. Well, lo and behold, years later, Isaac, in the same situation, told exactly the same lie. Now, can you see the parallel we've got here? Isaac was a miracle baby. He was born as a result of what the Holy Spirit did. There was no way he could have humanly been born. Well, that speaks to us of the virgin birth. Jesus received, uh, Isaac received everything as an inheritance from his father, and he only did what he's seen his father doing. And Jesus said, I do only what I see the father doing. 
Jesus, Isaac originated nothing. He copied his father. Jesus said, I do nothing of my own accord. He said, I do not speak of my own authority. He said, what I hear from the Father, that I speak. Now, can you see that here, in Isaac, we have Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. The one who came, his Father, if you like, originated the whole idea of salvation. Jesus came as an ordinary human being like you and I, but then lived in the riches of his Father in heaven, in exactly the same way that you and I, by faith, can today. Jesus came living a life of utter submission to his God. And that, of course, is what you and I are supposed to do as well. So we see that the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, thus far, we have Father, we have Jesus. And now we move on to old Jacob. Now there's a slight difference here. And the difference is this. Abraham directly represents God the Father. Isaac directly is a type of Jesus, the Son. But Jacob is not a type of the Holy Spirit. Jacob is a type of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Alright? I think this will become clear. Jacob. Now, what is, what is Jacob saying to us? What are we going to see through the life of, of Jacob? Well, we've already established Abraham... Builds up the family fortune, Isaac simply receives it as an inheritance. Abraham initiates everything, Isaac simply did what he saw his father doing. So in this sense, we are seeing that Jesus' relationship to his father is simply the same as, as ours. Everything we need to live a victorious Christian life is there because Jesus has won it for us. All we need do is to receive it from Father as a gift. There's nothing for us to originate. There's nothing for us to struggle and strive with. It's simply a question of receiving it by faith from the Lord and then doing only what we see Him in any moment doing it. So then, the point is, the riches of our salvation are there, all we need do is receive it all as a free gift. In the same way that we receive justification, in the same way that we receive salvation from the penalty of sin by faith, so it is with sanctification. We receive freedom from the power of sin by faith as a gift. And yet the problem is this. It's all there simply willing, simply there to be received. But we struggle and strive and live our way in our own strength, even though we are Christians. And what we're going to see in the life of Jacob, particularly in the story that we've read, is that we are going to see Jacob as a believer, but a believer who is still an independent man. He's saved, he's got past salvation, but he's still proudly independent and doing things in his own strength. And we're going to see the transition in his life from that to a submissive man who learns to receive that which God has for him, not by doing anything himself, but by realising he can't do anything and receiving it as a gift. 
So therefore, can you see that Jacob is representing to us the ministry of the Holy Spirit, bringing us to the end of our lives so that we can enter into the experience of what Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. Now let's have a quick look at Jacob's history. Most importantly, his conversion. Go to Genesis chapter 28. And we're going to look at the actual time when Jacob got saved. Alright, when he became a believer. And in chapter 28, we're going to read from verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamt that there was a ladder set up on earth, and top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And in actual fact, we learn from Jesus' teaching in John's Gospel that Jesus himself was that ladder. Do you remember he said, you'll see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man? Here he is meeting with Jesus. Jesus is revealing himself to Jacob, and Jacob as yet is an unbeliever. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Jacob, Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants, and your descendants, etc., etc. Now then, go down to verse 16. All right? Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know him. Here, Jacob, what's he doing? He's declaring that Jesus is Lord. Can you see that? Surely the Lord was in this place, and I didn't know it. Jacob has been born again. All right. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose in the morning, took the stone from under his head, and set it up for a pillar. He called the name of the place Bethel, which of course means the house of God. Now, go down into verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou giveth me, I will give a tenth to thee. Now, I want you to understand this. Jacob has genuinely got converted. But remember, he's, he's microseconds into a new life which means there's an awful lot of the old life still there. Now we see the one thing that characterised Jacob. He was a gambling man. He was a bargaining man. He was a man of action. Now can you see, he's just got converted, but what's he doing? He's striking up an agreement with the Lord. Alright? What he's immediately said to Lord, he said, right Lord, you know, I'm saved, wow, this is great, I'm in the kingdom. He says, now then Lord, if you, if, if you do this, 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 this and this for me, then I, Lord, in return, will do that, that, that and that and that for you. And of course, one of the things that Jacob offered God was a tenth of everything he had. Oh, lucky God. I mean, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And yet here is Jacob, out of the kindness of his heart, offering God a share in all his wealth. You see how crazy it is? He's bargaining with God. He's genuinely saved. But can you see, he is still the absolute centre of his own life. 
He's been saved, but God is a utility. All right? It's rather as if Jacob, I mean, I'm sure Jacob nowadays would have played the stock market, all right? And that for him, God would have been added shares. Now, can you see it would have been that kind of thing for him? So he's given himself to the Lord and everything like that, and he's going to make sure that the Lord does all right out of it. I mean, he is still the centre of his own life. Now then, let's have a look at verse 20. Um, sorry, we've already read verse 20. Dot that. What we've got here is we're seeing he's been converted. For him, Jesus is his saviour. He has got past salvation. He has been delivered from the penalty of sin. He is justified. But there is no way that Jacob has yet got Jesus as Lord. Can you see? He's delivered from the penalty of sin, but no way has he even begun to get delivered from the power of sin. He's been justified, but he is not sanctified. Jesus is his saviour, but Jesus is not yet his Lord. Now then, let's go over to chapter 32. And we're now going to read the immediate events that led up to this wrestling match he had with God. Chapter 32, the first two verses. Jacob went on his way, and this is just before the incident that we're going to home in on hours before it. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them he said this is God's army. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now that tells us an awful lot and I'll show you what that is in one moment. But what you've got to understand these verses we've just read in chapter 32 are 20 years after his conversion. We are now 20 years into his discipleship. And what I want to show you is that Jacob is nowhere nearer being sanctified after 20 years than he was the day he got converted. Remember, he got converted and he started bargaining with God. Now these verses, he sees the army of God and calls the place Mahanaim. It tells us everything we need to know about Jacob 20 years later. Because what happens is this, he actually has a vision of the armies of God. He has a vision of the angelic hosts. Now you've got to understand this. Jacob is marching along with his, 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 all his slaves, his wives, his children, his whole company. All his wealth, the cattle, the flocks, the herds, and he was a rich man. Jacob is walking along with everything he's got behind him. All right? He then has a vision of the army of God. And he calls the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, Mahanaim means uh, the place of two armies. Now, understand that. Mahanaim means two armies. Now, can you see how Jacob's mind is working? He hears, has a vision of the armies of God, God's power. He looks behind him, he sees his army, his power. And both are in the equation as far as he's concerned. Can you see that Jacob is a man who is pooling resources with God? Can you see that? 
he is still saying 20 years after Lord you do your bit I'll do my bit and then we'll really be going places now when you do that that is what the Bible calls being a carnal Christian one who's living not in the power of the spirit but in the power of the flesh and let me say too that to live in the spirit doesn't have anything to do with gifts of the spirit this is very important to understand the Corinthian church were rolling in gifts of the spirit I mean the gifts of the spirit were pouring out of their ears they were the most carnal unspiritual messy yuckiest church that had been known you see now I'm not saying that against the gifts of the spirit but I'm saying we mustn't mix up ministering the gifts of the spirit with being mature Christians that's a bad mistake and that Jacob here he sees God's power and he's quite happy to use it but he's still relying on his own power as well he's pooling resources with God he's getting together with God to live the Christian life now the immediate circumstances that he's facing is that he's on his way to see his brother Esau now you'll remember that he cheated Esau he embezzled him out of his inheritance I mean Jacob was a real rogue alright real rogue, real crook and now he's in a situation where he's now going to be confronted with Esau and that God is manoeuvring him and he is now about to face the consequences of his past sin and you remember in Galatians we're told that if you sow to the flesh you will reap corruption if you sow to the spirit you'll reap life and peace and righteousness but if you sow to the flesh you'll reap corruption and that applies to Christians that's referring to us if we sin well praise God if we confess it he can forgive it but until we do confess it God is quite able to make us pay for it God is quite able to make things go very very wrong until we are right with him now Jacob having sown to the flesh is about to meet as it were his corruption he's about to meet Esau and it's this circumstance that God has now maneuvered him into to bring about the transition that Jacob needs in his life more than anything else now let's turn now to the actual story that we've read and see how it develops verse 22 the same night he arose and took his two wives his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of Jabbok he took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had and Jacob was left alone now I want you to understand that God has here maneuvered him in a situation where his army is now the other side of the river he is separated from his army everything he has all his securities are now gone can you see God's got him on his own God has knocked away all the false security do you remember when Isaiah was about to set out on his ministry he set out about it you know filled with the spirit everything and he pronounced the woe on everything in sight I mean Isaiah had something about to say about everybody's sin woe unto you woe unto them was Isaiah's key word now it was right he was being led by God 
But when you get to chapter 6, Isaiah is suddenly before the king in all his glory in heaven. He has a vision of Jesus in all his glory. Right. And suddenly, all the security of preaching and the crowds and ministry, all the stuff that where people, you know, I mean, we, we tell people what the Lord's done for us, you see, and where is it supposed to be to glorify the Lord? Really, we want people to think, oh, doesn't God do marvellous things for him? Or for her. Do you know what I mean? You know, bolstering our own egos because of God's grace in our lives. We've all done it. And Isaiah is suddenly cut away from all his security. He's on his own. And this big man with such a magnificent spiritual experience now shrinks. Because all he's got to compare himself isn't with other Christians who aren't as spiritual. He's comparing himself with the King of Kings, with Jesus himself. And suddenly Isaiah alone before the Lord cries out, not woe unto you, not woe unto you, but woe is me. Can you see? And suddenly Isaiah is doing business not with everyone else's sin, he's doing business with his own sin. Humility is beginning to appear in Isaiah's life. He was alone, cut away from everything that he could hide from God behind. Now this is the same with Jacob. It didn't matter now he had a big army, that he was a rich man or anything like that at all because they were over the other side of the river. His wife, his wives are, his children are, even his emotional securities are gone. God has stripped him bare. And it's now, it's now in that circumstance, without anything to fall back on, completely alone and without security, that the most important thing since he got converted that is ever going to happen to him, is going to happen to him now. And of course we're going to see that Jesus is going to have a fight with Jacob. Verse 24, And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now I want you to understand that here, the initiative in this battle is Jesus's. Jacob didn't start this fight. Jacob was minding his own business and Jesus set on him, <laughs> alright? And I know that feeling, minding my own business and Jesus sets about me. And I mean, he will do it when it's needed. In Galatians 5 verse 17, we're told that the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. And that the spirit strives against us to prevent us doing what we want to do. So we see that God is actively fighting against that in you and I, which is of the flesh, which is of the sinful nature. 1 Peter 5 verse 5, he says God opposes the proud. And when you and I are proud, God opposes us. What I want you to see, God is actively hostile to our sinful nature. He's not hostile to us personally. There's nothing personal in this. This is Father trying to straighten his children out so they can be happy. But that here, suddenly, the Lord sets upon Jacob. The initiative in the battle was God's. It was not Jacob's. And we need to see as well, in Romans 8, and remember, in our last studies... We have been dealing with sanctification, noticing the pattern that Paul sets out in Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, and Romans chapter 8. And what we've seen is in Romans 6, Paul lays out the theory, you're dead to sin. 
In Romans 7, Paul outlines that hideous time in his Christian life when he was totally destroyed by his own sin, really got in a mess, and yet through that he came into such a, a hatred of his own sin that the truth outlined in Romans 6 became his own experience in Romans 8, but as a result of the struggle that he went through with God in Romans 7. So it doesn't surprise us to read in Romans 8 verse 7 this, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. You and I, to the extent that we are in the flesh and not in the spirit, there is this hostility between us and God and between God and us. And what we are seeing is God, the Lord, setting about Jacob to deal with that very thing in him. Verse 25, the first part, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. Now here's the thing, God sets about Jacob, but he didn't prevail. Now what we need to understand is this, the Lord was unable to have his way in Jacob. This is very, very important. Again, back to Romans 8 verse 7, we've already seen that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, but now we read, it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. So what we have here is a situation that God sets about Jacob because he wants a bit of holiness out of Jacob rather than all this sin, and yet the Lord is unable to prevail. The Lord is unable to get what he wants out of Jacob at this time because the mind set on the flesh, and Jacob still was, uh, cannot submit to God's law. It's an impossibility. You cannot be holy, not after the flesh. It cannot be done. Remembering Romans 7, when Paul goes through this thing, he says, I know what I want to do. He says, I delight in the law of God in my heart. But as soon as I try and do it, I sin. And he says, no matter how hard I try to avoid sin, I still sin. And he said, wretched man that I am, totally trapped, unable to do anything, but live a substandard, totally non-victorious Christian life. And this is where Jacob is up to this point. And we're going to see what happens to bring a transition in Jacob's life. Whereas, whereas the Lord couldn't get any joy out of Jacob before, he could get joy out of him afterwards. So what was it that God did to Jacob that changed Jacob and opened the way for sanctification to occur? Right. Verse 25 and the second part, we read this. The man saw he did not prevail against Jacob. He touched the hollow of his thigh, and Jacob's thigh was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Here the Lord breaks Jacob's thigh. Jacob is broken by God. Now the thigh is the strongest part of your body. You can generate more power from your thigh than from any other part of your body. And however strong even Jeff Capes may be with his arms and lifting barbells, the point is Jeff Capes can get more power out of his thigh. This is just the fact of the matter. The thigh is the most powerful point of the body. And here he is broken by God. Where Jacob was strongest, he has now been 
totally weakened when the Lord touched him. Now, we sing that chorus sometimes, don't we? He, he touched me, you know, he touched me, he touched me, and oh the joy, I'm being sarcastic, but oh the joy that filled my soul. And now, yes. we often seem to think, very sentimentally, that, I mean, there are all the times when the Lord touches you, and oh what joy, oh it's fantastic, you might be healed, you might be really mega blessed, or whatever, but... We've got to remember as well that there is another kind of touch from the Lord. And it's the touch that destroys you. It's the touch that breaks you. It's the touch that shatters you. But remember, we're looking at a brokenness that issues in Jesus being able to come out. So here, we're not looking at a touch on a believer's life of healing or blessing in the kind of sentimental sense, we're looking at a touch from the Lord which breaks Jacob right down the middle. Until this moment, Jacob was a strong, capable man. And that was his very problem. But now, Jacob is weak. Now, Jacob's strength has left him because he's been broken by God. Now in verse 26, look how this, has, how this has changed everything. Then he said, this is Jesus wrestling. Then he said, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now look what's happened. Jesus starts wrestling with Jacob and, ja and he couldn't prevail. Jacob is fighting him off. But now, as soon as he's been broken by God, Jesus now says, let me go, I'm off. Jesus makes like he's going off. And Jacob hangs on with all his might. He says, no, I'm not going to let you go. Now, what was the difference? I'll tell you. Before the Lord broke Jacob's thigh, Jacob didn't really need him. He did in regards to being saved from the penalty of sin, but that's all past tense, that's all done. But when it came to living the Christian life, Jacob really didn't need him, because Jacob was quite capable of living the Christian life, or so he thought. But now that he's been broken, he really needs Jesus. And the thought of the Lord not being there to empower him shatters him. Can you see he's been brought into submission to Jesus? He didn't need Jesus before, but now he really does need Jesus, and he's not prepared to let God go. He means business with the Lord. Now he wants genuine and deep blessing. He's through playing at being a Christian. He's through playing at discipleship. As a result of this brokenness, he's determined to go all the way with God. And in verse 27... Then he said to him, now this is the Lord speaking, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now Jacob wants real blessing from the Lord. But what we've got to see now is the condition for real blessing. Because sometimes people think, oh, how can I get the Lord to really bless me? And we come up with all the answers, well, faith, reading the Bible, uh, more prayer. You know, all the jargon stuff that drips off our lips so regularly. 
I'm going to show you the real answer to that question. Because you can talk about faith, you can talk about prayer, you can talk about reading the Bible, you can talk about all that, the gifts of the Spirit, and it can all be so much tosh. Because here we're talking about reality to God. And if we're answering the question, how do we really get blessing from the Lord? The Lord himself gives the answer. He said to Jacob, what is your name? And that Jacob, after 20 years of being a believer, is now at last honest about himself. And he says, my name is Jacob. Now the very name Jacob means supplanter. It means a schemer. It means one who is fundamentally deceitful. The big man Jacob, who was so big in everything that he did, so capable, so able, and doubtless so self-righteous, now comes clean about his spiritual condition. He is, as a believer, now coming into true, deep and genuine conviction of sin and sinfulness. And he calls himself what he is, Jacob, supplanter, schemer, deceitful. Now in Jeremiah 17 verse 9, and we've seen this verse already in this course, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. We've seen in Hebrews 3.12 that the problem is an evil, unbelieving heart. Can you see that it's Jacob's sinfulness that has been dealt with here by God? And that if we are to move into an experience of sanctification, then this true and deep repentance must needs come. An acknowledgement of the extent of our sinfulness, even as believers. Remember Isaiah before the king, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. And what stings so much about that is that Isaiah was a prophet. The channel of a prophet's ministry is his lips. And Isaiah, that capable prophet, feels the extent of his sinfulness before God most keenly in the very channel of his ministry and service to God. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. And again, remember, in Romans 7, as Paul recounts this terrible struggle that as a believer he went through in regards to his sinfulness, how does he end the chapter? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So here we see Jacob <coughs> undergoing true and deep repentance <coughs> of sin. And then in verse 28 we see this. Immediately, because God is never negative. God will be negative in regards to convicting us of our sin, but it's always for a positive purpose to bless us afterwards. Confess your sin, he forgives your sin. And in verse 28, immediately we read this, Then he said, Your name shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel. Because we're seeing that sanctification is not just delivering us from the old nature, it's bringing us into the experience of the new nature. 
It's not merely God dealing with the old BJ. It's because he wants the new BJ to blossom, to flourish. Remember me, there's two of me now. There's the sin nature BJ and there's the Jesus BJ. And conviction and God breaking us is simply so that the real me, the BJ version, the real you, can simply blossom in the power of Jesus himself. And it's interesting because... His name changed from schemer or deceitful or if you like sinner is now changed to Israel. And Israel talks about one who strives with God. Or it can also mean that God strives. Which I think is here the true meaning. Remember in Exodus 14 we read this, The Lord shall fight for you you have only to be still. Half our problem is we fight for ourselves, in that sense. The Lord wants to fight for us. So therefore, Jacob is seeing that God strives. It's not dependent on what he does. He's got to realise what the Lord does and get out of the way. And remember that one of the phrases that is underscoring this entire course, the principle we're outlining, is that Christianity, the whole of it, is, is said completely in five little words. You can't, but he can. And this is what God is working into his experience. He now receives a new name. Now look at verse 29. Because Jacob asked him, Tell me, I pray, your name. But he says, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Jacob says, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord says, You shouldn't need to ask that. And you should know. Now, in the same way, you and I, we go through loads and loads of problems and testings as disciples. Now, the point is, we shouldn't need to ask where all our problems are coming from. We should know where they're coming from. They're coming because God wants to sanctify us. Can you see? We shouldn't need to be, oh, why do I go through so many problems as a Christian? If you weren't going through so many problems, I doubt that you're being sanctified. I mean, there's no other way. It's through tribulation that we enter the kingdom of heaven. This is how God deals with us. It doesn't mean there isn't blessing as well and the old positive stuff. Of course there is. But there will always be trials, the fiery ordeal, as Peter refers to it in his first epistle. It's the Holy Spirit working, manipulating our circumstances to bring us to the end of ourselves and through our reaction to adverse circumstances showing us our true condition inside. Because when everything's rosy in the garden, I'm sure you're a lovely Christian. I'm sure you're beautiful. But when everything goes against you, do you remain such a chirpy chappy? You probably don't. And it's the reactions in adverse circumstances that reveal the truth of our hearts and thus bring on this conviction that the Holy Spirit wants to work in us. Now in verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face. Remember Isaiah, he saw the king. And there is forever a tie-up between these two. Because to have a vision of Jesus in all his glory, which is what revival is all about, 
Revival will come to the church when we have a vision of Jesus in all his glory. But that is always tied up with seeing ourselves as we really are. It's always tied up. Do you remember John the Apostle on Patmos? He saw Jesus in all his glory. And he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead. Because to see Jesus in all his glory is to be at his feet as one dead. Dead to your sin, dead to your struggling, dead to your striving. Because you have seen Jesus and in seeing him have realised that life is in Jesus and not in anything that we do at all. And in verse 31, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his thigh. First of all, the sun rose upon him, and in Malachi we're told that the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in its wings. So here, Jacob is now walking in a new revelation, a new ongoing revelation of Jesus. A new intimacy with Jesus that he didn't have before, but because now he's being so very honest about himself. And also, he was limping. He was limping. To receive a vision of Jesus in all his glory, to enter into sanctification or deliverance from the power of sin, it will always mean weakness and it will always mean brokenness. Remember what Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. And our problem is we're strong and God has to weaken us. God has to work that brokenness into us. And the thing that we need to understand is this. From this day onward, Jacob never did stop limping. He never stopped limping. And that what we need to see is that he is totally dependent now upon his staff. In those days, kind of the wandering folk going over rough terrain, they always carried a staff. And this staff was of great assistance to them, to help them get over places it would have been difficult to without it. But now, because he's been broken, when Jacob went to, went to Jabbok and had this encounter, on his way there, his staff was an added extra. If he needed it, he used it. But by the time he came away from this wrestling match with God, his staff was not an optional extra. He was totally dependent upon it all the time. Now, in the Bible, if you take the idea of staffs or bits of wood or sticks, they always represent faith in the Lord. Do you remember Moses when he was at the Red Sea? The Red Sea needed parting for them to get over. And what did God say? He said, hold out your rod. And it was when Moses held the rod out that the sea parted. It was faith in action. That's what it stood for. Uh, do you remember Elisha once? Uh, he was running a school for prophets. And one of his students had borrowed an axe, head, uh, an axe and, and the head had flown off. And it landed in the pond. And this kind of junior prophet was all uptight because he borrowed it and he couldn't return it because the axe was at the bottom of the, the river, or whatever it was. And Elisha, he broke some, a branch off a tree and threw it in the, uh, in the pond. And where the twig landed, the axe head floated. 
Can you see the wood being a picture of faith in action? And do you remember Joshua, when the, they were going into Canaan and they had to take Ai, God told Joshua to hold his javelin in the air. And as, lo as long as he held his javelin in the air, they won. You know, they beat them up. So can you see that staffs, javelins, bits of wood, rods, all this kind of stuff, it represents faith in action. It represents trust of the Lord put into practice. It represents helplessness. And think about it. Faith, to be true faith, is helplessness. Faith is the opposite of capability. Because if you can do it, you don't need God to do it. Faith is when you need the Lord to do it. So faith only comes into play when you can't do it. Now our problem is, we acknowledge that we need faith for healing. I mean, we don't kid us, you know, we can heal each other. And we operate quite happily in the area of faith for healing. Because it goes without saying, we can't do it. But what else do we operate by faith by? The Bible says the righteous shall live by faith. It doesn't say you shall pray for healing by faith, or you'll cast demons out by faith. It says you shall live by faith, totally comprehensively. And our problem is that we use faith for the gifts of the Spirit, period. And the rest of our Christian lives, we're living in our own strength. God is bringing us to this helplessness, this brokenness, when I tell you, not only do you go through a phase where you won't even bother to pray for anyone anymore, you won't even bother to, to do anything anymore, it's such, such despair must need sometimes come upon us that we feel there's nowhere left to go. It's in that blackness, it's in that despair, it's in that brokenness that then we receive the vision of Jesus and then begin to move in his strength. And we're seeing that here, uh, Jacob's staff, which represented his faith, his helplessness, his trust, his reliance on God, to do for him what he can't do for himself. This staff is no longer an optional extra. He didn't bring faith into pray when someone needed a, a prophecy or something. He was now living every day by faith, not just for the, the super spiritual bits. He needed it 100%. And what I want to show you now is the way that even as an old man, Jacob never recovered from the brokenness that God worked into him. Because go into Hebrews, and in Hebrews we have a little bit of information about Jacob that we don't get in the Old Testament. And we are now going to see, if you find Hebrews 11 and verse 21, we are now going to see how Jacob was right at the end of his life. He is now a very old man. This is years and years after his experience with the Lord at Jabbok. And what is it we read here? Hebrews 11.21 Remember his staff is faith, dependence on the Lord. No longer an optional extra. He's been broken. He needs the Lord in reality every moment of every day because he is being sanctified. Hebrews 11.21 And this picture is beautiful. Listen, by faith, Jacob, when dying, these are the closing minutes of his life on earth. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. 
Here he is, worshipping God, leaning on his staff, because without it he'd fall over. Can you see the beautiful picture, the weakness that was put in Jacob that never left him? <coughs> he even had to worship with his staff, propping him up. And if you'd taken it away, he'd have fallen over. Now that is the victorious Christian life. It's when if Jesus, if you're out of fellowship for one minute, you're flat on your face, you know it. You know it. Because you're living in dependence of Jesus. He's not an optional extra for the gifts of the Spirit and miracles. He is actually your ongoing, daily, minute-by-minute minute life. And it's to that extent that we can begin to move into what sanctification is. It's Jesus living through us in our place. But can you see, without this brokenness of the hard shell of our unbelief and our, our willfulness and our stubbornness, without that breaking, Jesus cannot get out. But when broken, out comes Jesus. So let's relate this back very quickly to Romans 6, 7 and 8. Paul demonstrates in Romans 6 that we've shared Jesus' death to sin. We're free of it. But he said it's by faith. That's the theory. But then in Romans 7, he recounts that terrible period in his Christian life when it just didn't work. Not only did he not improve, he got more sinful. Remember that hymn, that Newton hymn? Yeah, the Newton's hymn that I read out last week, last time, that he got more sinful, not better. He didn't get holier, he got worse. And at the end of that experience, Paul is crying out, O wretched man that I am, he has given up all hope of serving the Lord. And it's then at the end of Romans 7 that we come into Romans 8. He said, thanks be to God. Having cried out, who will deliver me from this state of affairs? He said, thanks be to God. Alright, who has delivered me through Jesus. And then in Romans 8 verse 1, he talks about living by the law of the Spirit, when it's no longer you who's doing it, but Jesus coming through you. So can you see this brokenness that must occur in our lives? It has its one-off moments, it has particular crisis experiences, yes, but we're talking about an ongoing thing. We're talking about living in brokenness before God. So let me leave you at this point with the thought. And the thought is this, that we've seen tonight and we're seeing in this course, talking about sanctification, some good news and some bad news. The bad news first, you cannot be sanctified. You cannot live a holy life. You cannot live a victorious Christian life at all. But now the good news. Jesus can. And he can do it through you and through I. And through me. We'll continue next time.